Hello, and welcome to the Kingdom Corner Podcast, where you can propel your faith into even deeper levels as we discuss how to live the kingdom culture on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus prayed. Here's your host, the great Matt Geib. Good day, good day, Kingdom Corner Podcast followers. The great Matt Geib with you on the spring ahead or spring forward day here in March. I hope you're wide awake by now. And today we are back in the book of Ephesians. We are on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We're landing on two verses here. When I first looked into this today or the last week, I thought maybe there isn't much here to talk about. And yet, the more I've studied this and developed it, the more and more things I see in here. So I think there's a rich lesson in here with some good nuggets for us to partake of and to learn from and to uh, have written indelibly on our hearts. And so today I'm going to read this, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in whom you also trusted that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I've titled this today, I I stole this from Stevie Wonder from his song, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? And you'll see why as we get into into the uh, lesson today, into the teaching today, where that comes from. So Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, we're talking about uh, the Holy Spirit today. That's the topic. We're talking about being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let's go back, and we're going to touch on two words, first of all, these two words, and, and highlight them a bit. You heard the word of truth, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I want to talk about the word of God and the Spirit of God, how there is a balance that we need in our Christian walk, between both the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. I think we need that in churches today, too, more than ever. There's those that claim that all they need sometimes, I've seen it in churches, is the Holy Spirit for guidance. That's all they need. You know, the Word isn't that important or as important. We need the Holy Spirit. Those people, I've seen those groups, I've seen people that espouse that kind of thought a lot of times veer off into mysticism and fanaticism, you know? And they're taken away sometimes even to um, demonic, you know, they're deceived by demonic forces, demonic beings because of that. And then there's the other group, those who claim, and I've probably been in this one more myself, all we need is the Word of God. That's all we need. All we need to study is the Word of God. That's the most important thing. Well, those people, they've a lot of times veer off into legalism and trying to earn God's favor by works. I've been there too. However, we need God's Word as an anchor and a plumb line, yet at the same time, we need the Holy Spirit breathing, transforming life into the Word of God as we read, as we study it, as we meditate upon it. That's what we need. We need to have the Spirit breathe life into the Word. Let's look at two passages, Psalm 1830, and there's a lot of passages you could read, but I picked this one out. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust him. The word of the Lord is tried. 
Read all of Psalm 119 if you want to know about the importance of the word. You know, thy word have I hid in my heart, it says in there, that I might not sin against thee. Your word is a light to my path. There's so many scriptures we could read about the word of God. Yet, there's another passage. All, you can read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul is coming to Corinthian church and he's, you know, preaching to them. He's, he's talking to them you know, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit about how he was called to be an apostle and why, how he came to them, what manner he was coming to them in. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, I'll read that. Go read the whole chapter, though. It's really good. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The last verse, I think, in that chapter, verse 14, says, you know, these things Man's natural mind can't understand the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually discerned. And then, as a third example, I thought, and I won't read it, but you can read it, Luke 24, 27 to 32, Luke 24, 27 to 32, it's about the two men on the road to Emmaus. And I think it's a timely um, account or story as we're getting close to Easter. They were going back to Emmaus after seeing Jesus Christ crucified. They were very depressed. They were very down and out. They were very discouraged as they talked among each other. Then all at once, as they were walking along, a third man came upon them, and it was Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. It was the risen Christ. He'd risen from the grave. And he began to, as they talked, he began to teach them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, from the beginning clear up to the time that he was crucified and showed them that Christ was the promised Messiah. He had risen from the grave, and he began to impart hope into their hearts. Then they took a break. They went off the road, and they were having supper together. And as Jesus broke bread, their eyes were opened. They were enlightened, and they knew that he was the risen Christ. And later on, they exclaimed, did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us? The combination of the word. He shared the word with them, maybe for a couple hours as they walked. And then the Spirit of God came upon them, and they were enlightened, and their hearts burned. That's what I'm talking about. Talking about the Spirit influencing the word, the living word, sharper than any two-edged sword as you read it, as you pray about it, as you meditate on it, as you study it. God wants to give you that kind of rhema word, that kind of burning in your heart that it really sinks into your heart. It really grabs you and it really transforms you. So let's go on and let's talk about being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, he says. Uh, Prerequisites to being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise are right in that verse. It says, in him you also trusted. First of all, you have to hear or they heard the word of truth the gospel of their salvation or our salvation, having believed, you have to hear the word of truth, the word of God, and you have to believe. You can believe the plan of salvation, even write down theological treatises on it without ever being changed. 
That is not what changes you. The gospel is not the Savior. It is the Lord Jesus. He saves, and He alone saves. So faith for a Christian is always related to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. It involves a personal commitment, a personal relationship. It is never merely an intellectual process, nor a belief in a statement of fact. Let me read that again. It's so powerful. It's by Ray Stedman, great preacher back in the 80s, 90s. He was a great man of God. You can believe the plan of salvation, even write theological treatises on it, without ever being changed. Wow. That is not what changes you. The gospel is not the Savior. It is the Lord Jesus. He saves, and He alone saves. So faith for the Christian is always related to the person of Jesus Christ. It involves a personal commitment, a personal relationship to Him. It is never merely an intellectual process, nor belief in a statement of fact. Ray E. Stedman. Boy, we could go on and on about that. You know, there's so many things I could say. I could tell you about it was either Lenin or Stalin who, as a boy, would go to a Bible camp in the summer. And I can't remember which one. I always keep saying when I talk about them that I have to find out which one. He always received the most prizes, the most prizes for Bible memorization. And I always point and then I say, What good did that really do him? It was in his head. It was intellectual, but it never went 18 inches to his heart, did it? Notice in the first, if you read through the chapter and you really take a fine-tooth comb as you read, the first 14 verses of this chapter mention Jesus Christ 15 times. Paul mentioned Jesus Christ 15 times. Isn't that amazing? In 14 verses, shows how he is the center of our salvation and what God wanted for us, does it not? So let's go on. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? The Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed, let me see if I can say the Greek word, is sophragidzo. Sophragidzo. Undoubtedly, this is a reference to the ancient practice of sealing letters or objects with sealing wax, and then taking that wax with your ring and sealing up the envelope or the papers you were sending out, okay? It bears an image of the person sending it out or, or his sign. That would be like the king. The use of seals or a seal always involved two specific ideas. The first was ownership. Actually, there's probably three ideas that I'm going to give you here. The first is ownership. It marked to whom the letter belonged or the papers belonged. It was possessed by the individual who owned the seal. That meant ownership. Song of Solomon gives us an example in Song of Solomon 8.6. It says, set me as a seal upon thine heart. And it's talking about Abba setting or us setting Abba as a seal on our heart. It's talking about Abishag and Solomon, but yet it's a greater typological picture of Jesus and his bride. So there he's saying, or she's saying, set me as a seal upon thine heart, a seal upon thine arm. You know, she's making that prayer to him. Second, the seal was a guarantee of the validity of a document. Esther 3.12 talks about King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus sending out papers through Haman. And I'm sure I didn't read it all, but it was a, a wicked edict that he talked the king into. And it was sealed with his seal that that was the law. Okay. Another scripture and this is more of a um, metaphorically or in type, 1 Corinthians 9, 2. 
It's a validity of a person in this part. 1 Corinthians 9, 2, of Paul. If I be an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you for the seal of my apostleship. Are ye in the Lord? You are the seal of my apostleship. They're the proof of his apostleship, okay? You know, that's a figure of speech. The third idea of a seal of, that we're talking about involved in the use of the seal was that of preservation. This is a beautiful thing here. You remember that the tomb of Jesus was sealed with the seal of the Roman emperor. The seal was intended to keep the tomb in so nobody could break into it, so they couldn't break into it. It was sealed up. No one ever dared break the seal of the emperor because if the centurion guards caught him, they would take him to court and that person would be sentenced to death. Thus it was to preserve the seal, was to preserve the tomb intact without intrusion or destruction. And uh, the very tomb of Christ is referred to by Matthew twenty-seven sixty-six, how they sealed it up. Then there's Revelation 5, 1, where it talks about in Revelation where I think it was the Christ was sitting there on the throne, and he had a book that was sealed in seven places. This is the idea of the Spirit's presence in our life when we're sealed. It means God is going to keep us. That as Paul has said here, he guarantees our inheritance, that something more is to come, and it is the Spirit himself who is that guarantee. So let's go on. So how is the Holy Spirit our seal? It could be in every sense of how this word, the meaning of the word. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. In other words, it guarantees our character, the Spirit of God. Romans 8.9 says the indwelling Holy Spirit is considered evidence that we are truly Christ's, okay, when the Spirit dwells within us. A mark of ownership. See also 1 Corinthians 6.19-20. In Romans 8, 13 to 14, it says, It is by the Spirit of God that we put to death the deeds of the body so we can live. So my reason for putting that here is it shows that the Spirit of God, by putting the deeds of the flesh to death, protects us from being harmed. It seals us like Jesus' tomb was sealed. See also Ephesians 3, 16. The Greek word for guarantee, when we're talking about guarantee in the passage, is arabon and it means a down payment. We are familiar with nowadays with when you go to the bank or you go to a mortgage broker and you get a loan for a house, you sign a paper and you put down a down payment. That is an arabon, a guarantee that there will be more to come. That is the when you move into the house, that's the more to come. The presence of the spirit of God in your life, the joy and peace that he gives is the guarantee that there is more to come much more, much better in fuller quantity and greater quality and quantity than we've ever experienced so far. Just the Spirit is guaranteeing that. It's guaranteeing it's a small taste of what we're going to be receiving in heaven, is it not? Just as you satisfy the the smile on the banker or mortgage broker's face when you pay a down payment and sign papers for that house, and he knows there's more to come. He's going to get more of your money. You're going to get the house. So the presence of God's Spirit in your life is indication that there's more to come. Great and glorious as that is, it is not the end, okay? It's not the end. Let's go on. Verse 14 says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? Now, a better rendering in the original language, most literally more more so it means 
It could read, until the redemption of the walk-around. Who is the guarantee until the redemption of the walk-around of the purchased possession? This references the custom of buying a piece of land or ground and then going out and walking around it. When you've walked around it, you have made it yours. I remember when we first, first 30 years ago, bought our first piece of land. We put a manufactured home upon it. After we put money on it, we did the same thing. We went and walked around it. We were very excited. That was a sign to everybody else that you'd paid a down payment. People in the neighborhood knew we, we had bought that land. And this was now your piece of property. They also gave, in the Old Testament times, in those customs, they gave a small bag of dirt from that property as a guarantee, or as the King James says, as an earnest for the purchase that the person had made. So let's go to the next point that I have in my notes. So just when are we sealed with this Holy Spirit of promise? As I read in the verse, let me go back to the verse, it is after, not before in whom after you have believed, it says, you were sealed. After, not before, one hears the word of truth. We read about that in verse 13. One believes the gospel. We talked about believing and hearing, did we not? When I first first started today, letter C of my point here, one becomes a son of God, Galatians 4, 6 to 7, which occurs when you become a believer and you become baptized as part of it, then, thus it is only when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have to, again, we have to hear the Word, we have to believe the Word, it has to be more than just something intellectual, all right? As Peter told the crowd on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38 and 39, okay? And as he told the Sanhedrin Council, Acts 5, 32, this seal as a mark of ownership is something that might be of more significance to God and also to Satan, who would try to steal that from God. It might be more significant to God than to us. But we can also take comfort in knowing that God considers us his property and that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the evidence of such ownership, right? Paul describes the Spirit in this passage as the Holy Spirit of promise. That's what it says right here in this passage. Okay, let's talk about the promised Holy Spirit. Let's talk about that. Some have called the promise of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to read some more scriptures here, the Holy Sealing, or second work of grace. Others refer to it, you'll never find this in the Bible, in a concordance, some of the rest of Christians refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about that for a minute. Luke 24, 49, and behold, I will send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. See, they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus was getting ready after his 40 days that he resurrected and was on earth visiting around. He was getting ready to ascend into the heavens, and that's what he told them. One of the last things he told them, go to Jerusalem and wait for this promise of power. And then what happened? Acts 1, 4, and 5, they were assembled together. This is the disciples and the 120 with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. I guess this is Jesus again talking. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized, that's where we get the baptism of the Holy Spirit from, baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Acts 2, 1 to 4. 
Now, here's where it really, this is where they were in Jerusalem, and they were waiting on the day of Pentecost. They were waiting because of the command and the promise Jesus had made right before he ascended. Acts 2, 1 to 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all together with one accord in one place. We're talking about the disciples, and I believe there were 120, if you read through Acts there, that were in the upper room. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house with where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. It sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was the evidence that was being shown right there, that they had been sealed with the holy sealing. They have received the second work of grace, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was evidence because they were all spoke in different languages, okay, or prayed that way. Acts 2, 38 and 39, see right there in that chapter, Peter then gets up and preaches a sermon, 3,000 or added to the church that day. And you can read, you should read all of chapter 2. I'm just picking out verses that emphasize this. Acts 2, 38 and 39 at the end, because then people were wondering, what happened here? Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive or shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. See, I'm talking today, I believe this Holy Spirit sealing in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is referencing what happened here in Acts, which many of us call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, is it evidence like many of my colleagues believe and like I used to believe for years? I'm going to step out here and say some different things. Is it evidenced by praying or speaking in tongues? Well, I used to think that and as you read the book of Acts, there certainly are, I'd say, 80% of the instances where this happens or more, it's evidenced by praying or speaking in tongues. I'd say praying in tongues, the prayer language. That's a whole other topic, the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestational gifts. That's a whole other topic that we can't just get into today. We don't have time for it, nor is our study on Ephesians devoted to that. But I will say this about it. This second work and power of grace, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, is it evidenced by the prayer language of tongues? I'm not so sure you can dogmatically prove that anymore. And yet, I do believe that the main thing will be that your life will be transformed with great power, that it will be evident that God is in your life. And there will be things that show that evidence. One is praying in tongues, that God gives you that gives you that gift, if you want to call it a gift, or gives you that grace. And I'll just say, some people would say by me saying that, oh, that's good. I don't have to worry about that then. Well, let me say this to you, friend, Christian friend, don't you want everything God has for you? You know, uh, my friend and I were talking about this today, and it talks about, when it talks about manifestational gifts, I think that's in Romans or Corinthians. I have to look it up. I should have looked it up before. The manifestational gifts, it talks about he gives the gifts to whomsoever will. And like my friend told me, she said, I want to be those, you know, he gives gifts to whomsoever will. In other words, it looks like he's giving this gift to this person, to that person, whomsoever will. Like he's kind of like a Christmas time, passing out different unique gifts to each one. And that, that's true. But like she said, I want to be the whomsoever will to be able to receive all the gifts. 
that he has by faith. Not just this one or that one, but all of them. Just like if you call the prayer language a gift, it is a gift of grace from God. Don't you want that in your life? I do. There's great power in praying where I would say that your mind is bypassed and it's your spirit connecting with God's spirit in prayer about things you don't understand or even know at times. And it's working a mighty work on your behalf. Some other time, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the prayer language, all those things. We'll talk about, there's other series in here in the Kingdom Corner podcast on apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, where I think there's more detail on that. But I will talk more specifically sometime about the gifts of the Spirit, but not right now. So, I read those scriptures, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul describes the Spirit in this passage as the Holy Spirit of promise. And we just read about how that is promised to us and how the apostles received it and how we can receive it. In view of what we learn next about the Holy Spirit, I suspect Paul refers to the latter for the point here is when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it is not so much we who are acquiring possession, but it is God. It is he who has walked around us as his property, has marked us out and given us the down payment, the earnest, the erhaban or araban, the Holy Spirit. He's given that earnest to us, that he's going to come again and claim his purchased possession. The possession is our body. See, he's coming back for us someday, right? Either when he returns or when our body gives out and we pass away and we go meet him in heaven. So Paul is referring here to the resurrection of the body. And in that day, he says, God completes the transaction. He comes to claim the whole thing, everything for himself. Ephesians 4.30 says, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. That's what he's referring to. When Jesus returns again, or when, you know, our body gives out and our spirit goes up to meet him. What he has begun, he will accomplish. And the guarantee is the presence of the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the power, like we talked about, the evidence of the power of the Holy Ghost in your life and mine. It's interesting in the modern Greek, I love this, Erebon is used for an engagement ring. And we sang about that, or I didn't sing about it, I listened to the song. I'd like to sing it, but it seems to be a little beyond my range about that ring he's placed upon my arm, you know, and on my heart. It's an engagement ring. When a man gives a woman an engagement ring, he's giving her a guarantee that one day she's going to be his bride. Remember we've talked about the bride of Christ here? You know, isn't that the same thing? It's a guarantee that one day we will be his bride as well, okay? Let's see. Got another few notes to talk about. 2 Corinthians 1.22, the Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest or guarantee in our hearts of the Holy Spirit, okay? It's given to us as an earnest or guarantee in our hearts of the Holy Spirit, of God's Holy Spirit. It's given to us that way. 2 Corinthians 5.1-5, For we know that if our earthly house, that's what I was talking about here a minute ago, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, that is in this body, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. In other words, we're longing to be clothed in that heavenly 
body in that heavenly connection with him. For we are in this tent, we groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee that he's, we're going to eventually be clothed with our heavenly body. We're going to eventually be fully connected to God. Okay, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, comforter, to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans as orphans. I'm coming to you. See, he was talking about the spirit that hadn't been given yet because Jesus wasn't yet glorified and hadn't left the earth. Hendrickson comments on this. At the moment when believers receive their full inheritance, which includes a glorious resurrection body, that's uh, Ephesians 4.30, the redemption of God's own possession takes place. That is the full release to him that which is his by virtue of the fact that he both made it and bought it. Wow. At the moment when believers receive their full inheritance, which includes a glorious resurrected body, Ephesians 4.30, the redemptions of God's own possession takes place. That is the full release to him of that which is his by virtue of the fact that he both made us and bought us. That's the way we could say it. So we have the Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantee. That's what I've been talking about today. What should we react? How should we react about, be reacting about that? Do you know that in this very chapter, Paul has said three times this simple phrase, to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. That's what it's all about. So we will be to the praise of his glory. Thus, our reaction should be the same as Paul as stated at the beginning of this section. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. To God be the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you, my friends, for listening to the Kingdom Corner podcast. And that is our lesson on being signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Yours. You are his today. You are his today. Be encouraged by that. Thank you again. Thank you for joining us for another great discussion on The Kingdom Corner, hosted by Matt Guide. Remember to click the subscribe button so you can be notified of each new episode as it's released. To enjoy an even deeper dive into God's Word, check out Matt's new devotional book, Searching for Significance, a devotional journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Learn more and even hear from Matt himself on the devotional website, significanceacademy.com. As always, thank you for being a part of the Kingdom Corner.